Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity, a special series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations and paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you all. Um, I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. And I'm your host, Shalon Park from Princeton Theological Seminary. Imagining Persecution, Why American Christians Believe There Is a Global War Against Their Faith, published by Rutgers University Press in 2021, explores the origins of the idea that there is a global war on Christians and Christianity. In reflecting on this idea, Jason asks in this book, where did the idea of a global war on Christians come from? How did this idea fit into the broad sweep of Christian history? Why has this idea become a compelling way for many American Christians to think about the global state of Christianity in the 21st century? Through the lens of religious persecution, this book provides a historical account of these developments, showing the global, theological, and political changes that made it possible for contemporary Christians to claim that there is a global war on Christians. It also gives a concise history of the categories like martyrs, statistical and metrical evidence, and theologies that have come together to produce a global Christian imagination uh, premised upon the notion of shared suffering for one's faith. The book argues that this history does not deny certain instances of suffering or death. Rather, it sets out to reflect upon the consequences for thinking about religious violence and Christianity worldwide using terms such as global war on Christians. Over the course of our conversations today, we will take a closer look at this important work, what some of its key arguments are, how it guides the readers in better understanding this notion of a global war against Christianity, and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this volume as well. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversations as well. Today, we are privileged to talk with Jason Bruner, the author of Why American Christians Believe There is a Global War Against Their Faith. I would like to begin by introducing our author. Jason Bruner is an associate professor of global Christianity in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University in Tempe. He's an ethnographer and historian studying Christianity in Sub-Saharan Africa and the United States. He's especially interested in issues of conversion, left religion, violence, and globalization. Jason has published on the topics of religion, conversion, 
and politics in East Africa, and comparative study of genocide, along with several creative nonfiction pieces. His first book, Living Salvation in the East African Revival in Uganda, was published by University of Rochester Press, 2017, which is a cultural history of Christian revival movement in Uganda from the 1930s to the 1950s. He is also co-editing a forthcoming book with David Kirkpatrick, provisionally titled Global Visions of Violence, Agency and Persecution in World Christianity with Rutgers University Press. Welcome, Jason, to New Books in World Christianity. And thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book. Uh, Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, As we start off this uh, interview today, this podcast, I wonder if you could um, uh, start by telling us a few words about yourself. That is, where did you grow up? where you went to school, and how you became interested in your field of study. And feel free to mention any influential interlocutors or mentors that you might have had along the way. Sure, yeah. I grew up in uh, North Georgia. Uh, My family uh, and I were raised Christian uh, in a couple of different evangelical denominations. Um, And so... In both of those churches that I, I spent most of my time in growing up, they were they were both quite interested in, you know, missionary work overseas um, and in issues like those that are published by groups like Voice of the Martyrs around you know persecution, um, you know, with stories from events like the Holocaust or or the Cultural Revolution and how missionaries or other Christians responded to those, very much informed. Uh, you know some of the 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 lived memory of of the faith in the 20th century. So those kinds of issues have always been a part, as long as I can remember, of how I've thought about Christianity and my own interactions with it. Um, and you know from there I went to study uh, religious studies uh, as an undergraduate student, and there found uh, the history of Christianity uh, as as an area that I was just fascinated by. And I was fascinated by it because, I mean, a sort, sort of through history, uh, because um, I was interested in why does Christianity look, feel, sound different in different places? You know, what, what makes sort of the, the Christian faith that I had encountered in parts of Latin America feel so different from the ones that I knew, you know, in, in suburban North Georgia uh, in the 80s and 90s. And, and that kind of question sort of took me into history and the history of Christian missions. And, and so I, I you know, it, it sort of took me through undergraduate into graduate school. Uh, and that's where I started to encounter you know, names that are familiar to people who, who are students of global Christianity, you know, and, um, Dana Roberts, Andrew Walls, Lamansane, and, and others like that, you know, was first introduced to that literature. And that, that brought me to, you know, Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, where I did, you know, my dissertation on, you know, that looked at things like British imperialism, uh, Christian foreign missions in, in that case in East and Sub-Saharan Africa and and how those things impacted kind of what African converts did with the faith in the early to mid 20th century. 
And so that was really my training. I mean, it was really uh, the training that for students of global Christianity, you we sort of are have have come to know is something like the canon, you know, uh, Laman Sane and Andrew Walls, and thinking about sort of these rapid and and important dramatic changes that have happened, especially in the 20th and 21st centuries, about how Christianity is growing, changing, um, the demographics are shifting, you know, from north to south, and the kind of quintessential narrative. And I was, I was trained in that, and I and I don't necessarily critique that, but um, it. I think as as the conversation plays out, I mean, I started to sort of think about what are some of the things that that training perhaps missed. Um, what are some of the 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 gaps, the lacuna uh, that were a part of that narrative of what Christianity is and is becoming? Thank you so much for this opportunity to learn about you. I would like to invite you to tell us a little bit more about how you came to write Imagining Persecution, Why American Christians Believe There is a Global War Against Their Faith. How did this idea develop? What led you to asking some of these important questions? What was your research process like, and how was your writing experience overall? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think like any major project in any book, I think is a major project, you know, it, it shifts and changes and, and usually takes a lot longer than, than you, than you think it will. Um, you know, to some extent, the, the seeds for this, this particular book, um, this way of approaching the topic came right when I was in the middle of my dissertation research at, at Princeton Theological Seminary. And I was, I had focused in on Uganda and and I was thinking about Uganda very much the way that I think a lot of uh, those of us in our in our subfield of study think about places like that, right? That it's it's sort of one of it feels like it's a new center of a, of an emerging dynamic, new expressions of Christianity. Um, that in many ways Uganda is is kind of a success story um, in terms of Christianity ends up doing quite well there numerically, right? There, there are a number of converts, uh, even in the colonial period. And so the story that I was thinking about uh, historically was kind of what, what allows this to happen in Uganda? Sort of what are the, what, what's the groundwork that in this case, Ugandan converts were laying in order to kind of allow for this flourishing in the 20th century? And, and I mentioned this sort of uh, a family friend uh, happened to uh, ask me, you know, what, what are you doing for your, you know, in your, in your studies now? And I said, well, I'm, I'm studying Christianity in Uganda. And she said, oh, right. Well, you know, we read Voice of the Martyrs. And so we know how Christians over there are persecuted. And, and it really caught me off guard because I saw in Uganda something that was about growth and Christian flourishing and Christians are by and large doing just fine in Uganda. You know, they're, they're an import, they're, they're prominent public parts of public life and the government and, and so on. And I, I wasn't really thinking of Christians there as particularly persecuted or beleaguered or under duress, but it was that kind of that knee jerk reaction where she says, you know, oh, they're over there and they're persecuted. And we know that they're persecuted kind of because they're over there, wherever Uganda is. 
Um, and it was that kind of seed that kind of got, got, got into my mind because it, it made me realize, oh, this is something that's almost the exact opposite of the narrative that I have about what world Christianity is now. That for my friend, you know, she was, she thinks of very much of Christianity as globally uh, under severe hardship. It's not a good time to be a Christian right now uh, in her way of thinking about it. And that Christianity is kind of, in her view now, presently defined by its, you know, by its, uh, the fact that it's, it's persecuted rather than growing and moving, transforming rapidly and, and so on. And it was that kind of tension that I kept on going back and forth with. And, and that started, you know, more than a, about a decade ago. Um, and then I just kind of, it, it just never really got out from underneath my skin. And then I thought, well, after my first book was done, that, that this was a time to kind of give some time to fleshing out these ideas and where they came from. And, and that, that ended up being a little bit trickier in part because I started writing the book seriously right before the 2016 presidential election. And, and it was in 2016 and then into 2017 when this idea of Christians being persecuted in the United States and globally got politicized. It, it, you know, it was like supercharged. It was actively campaigned upon by, and uh, you know, Trump who who ended up winning. And and the challenge for writing the book in 2016, 2017, 2018. Uh, was that I didn't know where the story ended because to me before that, it was really just about an idea, you know, that my, that my friend had voiced like very much in passing, but then it became about public policy. It became about national politics. It became about foreign policy in a very real tangible way. And in a way that felt like it was the, it changed the story almost by the day, especially in like 2017, where all of these news stories were coming out so quickly around these kinds of issues. And, and it was hard to write in the midst of that. It just felt like a complete whirlwind. Um, so I ended up setting the book aside a few times and then eventually finished it in 2019. Uh, and it, and it, and I think taking that much time allowed it to sort of clarify in my own mind what it was that I thought was most important to say about it. But it was a rather frustrating writing process that that went on for longer than I'd ex- and, and, uh, anticipated. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your insights on your work. I mean, um, this will be very helpful for our readers as well to kind of provide a detailed account of the background of the book, um, in a way, your journey uh, in in writing about this important issues, um, which really matters right now, and not only in the academia, but also in the general public too. So thank you for sharing that, uh, your insights um, to this work. Now, I want to kind of shift our attention to the book itself, um, to the depth. Um, it is comprised of five chapters, and in taking a closer look at the introductory chapter, um, you begin by laying the groundwork to your quest in searching for where this idea of a global war on Christians came from and how this idea kind of fits into the history of Christianity and why this has led to many American Christians to think about the global state of Christianity in the early 21st century. 
one of the first issues that you discuss uh, in in the concept is the concept of persecuted church and how it has come to function within American Christianity. So uh, my first question to you in regards to um, the first introductory chapter is, uh, do you mind elaborating more on this notion, uh, this imaginary category of the persecuted church? Um, how do Christians mean, what did Christians mean by this, uh, this term? And what were some of the assumptions that it carries? Um, I think you've also mentioned the issues of, quote, you know, true Christians. And how does that relate to this uh, issues of persecuted church? Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you for the question. Um, so I think to start out, the, the idea of the persecuted church is is like a, it's a trans-historical idea. Um, as, a, as a particular term, though, it, it emerges in the kind of mid to late 20th century. And, and it, you know, for the most part, it, it was primarily talking about Christians who are living under communist rule, you know, in the USSR or in China, then North Korea and some other places like that. Um, and it, so it doesn't necessarily have a geographical reference. It doesn't, it's not talking about Baptists or Methodists or Catholics, you know, like kind of any Christian theoretically can be, a part of the persecuted church because the persecuted church is simply defined by the fact that these are Christians who are living under severe, you know, repression or, or political constraints, especially. But this idea, the, 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 when I say it's a trans historical idea, it, it also means that there's like this sense of, of the persecuted church is a, spiritually pure church and that you can see this throughout history especially in the early church and by the early church i mean you know the first three to four centuries of of christian history especially um particularly before constantine you know uh uh sort of issues the edict of toleration in the early fourth century right so that you have this idea that throughout history there have been times in which the the kind of the real christians have had to suffer for their faith and you know that they're the true christians who are really suffering because they are willing to undergo that suffering and so to speak about the persecuted church then is to kind of speak about this spiritually powerful, resonant um, kind of expression of Christianity that supposedly comes only when it's kind of needs to be practiced under these kind of uh, significant restraints or constraints against sort of a freedom of worship or a freedom of religion. Um, so as kind of as as the concept developed especially into like the 1990s and certainly from the 90s to the present it the the idea of the persecuted church kind of blends with a related concept called the 1040 window which is uh, a way of talking about kind of a, a region on the map between the 10th and 40th parallels that more or less captures a lot of North Africa, the Middle East, parts of South Asia, uh, kind of countries in that band. Um, and so now probably it's a bit more common to primarily reference Christians living under uh, in, in a predominantly Islamic or, or Muslim uh, kind of 
dominant context. Um, that's that's more what I think Christians in the last twenty to thirty years have in mind when they're talking about the persecuted church. Um, but it it when I say that it it becomes a spiritually powerful or spiritually resonant form of Christianity, it's I, I think my argument would be that it's because there's this deep you know, long-standing uh, tradition within Christianity to uh, connect persecution with righteousness. I mean, he, this is in the Gospels where, you know, Jesus in different ways says, you know, if, if you want to be my disciples, you must take up your cross and follow me with the assumption of that being that a true disciple should expect to suffer the, the similar kinds of consequences that Christ himself suffered. Um, it's throughout other other places of the New Testament as, as well, where sort of the purity of one's faith or one's spiritual righteousness is is sort of illuminated when things get especially difficult. Um, and so that's where this kind of perception of kind of when I use a phrase like these are the true Christians or the they have a pure faith, it's because it, you know, I would I would argue in in the Christian tradition, suffering has this kind of crucible purifying um, character to it, and so the the assumption is that the the belief, the practices, those those Christians who are in those churches um, are you know have have this kind of deeper, more profound experience of Christ's presence or of God's presence in their lives, and and certainly many attest to that. You know, many who you know, went through the gulags or, or lost things have been imprisoned or, you know, suffered other forms of violence, certainly have written about that, spoken about that. Uh, and so it becomes this sort of way of, of talking about a different form of ecumenical Christianity, because anybody can be a part of this persecuted church, right? It's the fact that you're persecuted. So you could be an Orthodox Christian or a Catholic or a Pentecostal or a Baptist and, and still be kind of included in this concept merely by the fact that you're being persecuted or your faith is being targeted in some way. Thank you for Clarifying the concept of the persecuted church, a brief follow-up question is, so you highlight the problematic history of differentiating and categorizing of Christians and how there is a constant effort in trying to define Christianity between this binary of orthodoxy and heresy. And we see this controversy spilling over into the Reformation and tumultuous relationship between Protestants and Catholics. So you mentioned of these two uh, important developments that helped change the dynamic in the 20th century, crediting the ecumenical movement among Christians and the creation of sociological tools. Can you explain to us a little more on these two developments and what kind of changes brought to the understanding of Christianity? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, when I first set out to think about what are the kind of the, the fundamental questions that I wanted to explore in the book, you know, one of the important ones uh, in writing from an American Christian perspective was how did American Christians come to view 
those of differing Christian traditions as genuinely Christian, right? In some sense, you know, how did evangelical Americans come to view Catholic Nigerians as being legitimately Christian or, or, you know, the examples could be, you know, multiplied from there. And so these kind of these two things are, are two pieces of that process uh, because they've both, I think, influenced how both scholars as well as kind of ordinary everyday Christians in the pews think about Christianity and their faith. Um, so for the ecumenical movement, I mean, there, there's a kind of formal, so to speak, ecumenical movement and a history of it. Um, but there, I, I guess I want to clarify maybe some different pieces of, of what I mean by that. Um, you know, one form of ecumenism is like trying to find ways to practically cooperate across traditions, right? If you have congregationalists and Presbyterians and Catholics who, who have limited resources in a, say in a mission field somewhere, you know, they're, they're perhaps likely to share some things or to at least find some ways to kind of work together, even if they have slightly different priorities. Um, you, you see this again on, on the American frontier in the 19th century where, you know, some denominations agreed to share or recognize denom- uh, ordination across denominational differences because there just weren't that many churches and pastors. So that's kind of one form of ecumenism is like this practical cooperation. There, there's, an, there's another form which is about kind of the intellectual piece of this, like reconciling you know, foundational theological differences, like especially those that emerged in the Reformation, you know, between like Calvinists and Baptists and Lutherans and Catholics. Um, And so in the 20th century, you've you've had a number of, you know, uh, uh, meetings and conciliar statements and and ongoing dialogues to sort of think about how to reconcile some some of these differences. Uh, and then there's like a, a, a kind of institutional ecumenism where, you know, it, the, one expression of this might be like the World Council of Churches or the National Council of Churches. But but there was even a moment, you know, not even just a moment, but several years in serious effort in the early 20th century put into, you know, formally creating a, a single global church, you know, institutionally where you would uh, kind of presumably lose denominational differences, even in in its most extreme form. So all of those influences are are a part of what kind of gets collectively grouped as the the ecumenical movement. Um, And right. And it has some, some real meaningful results in terms of how, especially at the top levels, how officials, pastors, church leaders, um, and their organizations, the related, say, missions organizations, have have come to work together in the 20th century. And it's certainly a massive accomplishment to have something like the World Council of Churches in the 1940s or the National Council of Churches in the United States. Um, but for, for some Christians, particularly American Protestants, they viewed those efforts very suspiciously for, for a few different reasons. One of them was 
you know, kind of theological. They thought that they were watering down the purity of what their denominations stood for, you know, that they had a, a particular way of expressing the gospel truth that was kind of being mortgaged or sacrificed in the, in, for the sake of a, of a kind of unity. Um, in another sense, it was it was political. They thought that some of these groups were too soft on, say, communists or other regimes, and that they were involved in in kind of politics that they found problematic or questionable. And so they kind of moved out of these, or, or in some cases, actively resisted these ecumenical efforts. But then, I guess what I would also argue is that. A, a number of these same Christians, uh, evangelicals and non-evangelicals, developed other ways of working ecumenically, you know, outside of these kind of formal um, institutions. And so persecution is, I think, a really important way that sort of serves to make their imagination of Christianity more ecumenical. Um I mean, one example that I, I that I give in the book is how American Christian, especially how American evangelicals' perceptions of Armenian Orthodox and Assyrian Christians changed because they were being persecuted by the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and so here you have you know a case in which these same Christians had sponsored missions to to essentially convert what they viewed as nominal Christians. And then when they begin to be attacked and persecuted, and eventually it culminates in the, in the Armenian genocide, um, these, these same American Christians say, no, we have to aid our brothers and sisters in the faith, you know, do your Christian responsibility to help your fellow Christians. Right. So this is a, this is a significant shift. Um, and it's one that kind of comes outside of these formal talks. It, you know, it comes very much sort of uh, from a kind of ground up a- approach where they change their perceptions. Um, the other piece that you asked about the sociological tools, you know, that's a little bit more indirect, I think, but I, I still think it's very important. Um, I-, I think with the tools that come from from a discipline like sociology of religion, right? That they're very much uh, a, a part of this assumption that religion is a is a thing that is constant and somewhat easily measured, um, and it comes out of a particular conceptualization of what the category of religion is. And this is, I think, in my view, a category that's been rightly, you know, critiqued from the point of view of, you know, scholars like Assad and Jay-Z Smith and, and Tomoko Masuzawa and, and a number of others. But a lot of those same assumptions are very much built into that field as they are in other areas of religious studies. Um, but one of the, I mean, some of the things that that does to how people think about their faith is is through this use of categories and the use of categories that perhaps I as a you know regular church going Christian might not use to describe my own faith but that might be what I check on a form or respond to a survey with you know things like Christian or church or religious service or faith right those things can shift sometimes quite dramatically depending on, on the tradition or the person or the, the social context. Um, 
So in creating these categories that start to sort of ask questions about things that are framed often uh, in a bit broad, more broadly than a number of, than, than I think a lot of kind of ordinary church-going folks would frame them, it starts to create these larger categories like Christian, right? So when when a group like the Pew Forum at measures Christians, now they, they, you know, they break it down, you know, sometimes with a few dozen uh, kind of subcategories, but often it's still very much presented as, in, in kind of ecumenical terms. This is how many Christians are in the United States, or this is how many Christians are in the world, or, you know, as, as was the case uh, a few years ago, right? There are fewer Christians attending church now. There are fewer people identifying as Christian. And these categories are actually quite expansive categories that nevertheless then start to impinge upon how Christians understand themselves. Think about all of the programs, for example, that were developed, retooled, remodeled in the wake of the growth of the religiously unaffiliated a few years ago. This this has a, a can have a significant effect on how sort of individual Christians and churches think about their faith and kind of how they fit into a larger story. So uh, I would say a final point on on these categories is that when they're presented in terms of kind of sing- singular, almost homogenous religious identities like Christian, it it can have this effect, I think, of presuming that the religious identity is the most important one, or that o- it overrides other forms of identity like uh, political affiliation or gender or, you know, marital status or um, economics or where you live. I mean, all of these other things are, of course, a part of, of how we understand ourselves. Um, and so, it can also begin to create these kind of reified identities um, that um, can be can be valuable in some contexts and and quite challenging and problematic in other contexts. And I would I would argue when it comes to thinking about persecution, uh, perhaps it's it's more problematic than helpful. Wow. Well, thank you for enlightening us uh, of these two developments and its impacts. Um, going into now uh, the second chapter of your book, you go to great lengths uh, to provide the readers with a general overview of how um, Christians have written about martyrs and martyrdom from the time of the New Testament through the Reformation in the 16th century. I personally enjoyed this part as I want to recommend to our listeners and our future readers, uh, especially for those who might be unfamiliar with this discourse, um, as the book really highlights some of the key literature uh, regarding persecution. And in this chapter, we are able to trace through some of its early writings um, that this concept of persecution and martyrdom um, had that instead of bolstering a sense of Christian unity and community, rather it had a different agenda of, you know, separating Christians of different traditions from one another and in a way reinforcing one's own uh, existing theological claims and traditions. And if I'm not mistaken, this has also been politicized throughout time as well. Um, but you also mentioned a new dynamic that unfolds, and that is with the emergence of Islam. 
Um, do you mind sharing about what kind of repercussions the spread of Islamic armies and the empires beginning in the mid-7th century had on these Christian sects? Um, more specifically, how did it impact the relationships of Christians to one another? And how did Christians interpret persecution uh, during this time? Yeah, uh, thanks. It's a, it's a great question, and it's, a, it's an important one. I, I think, um, I mean, one of, the, one of the lines of, or strands of, of writing or scholarship that I'm kind of writing against is, is a, a strand of scholarship that, that focuses on kind of the pervasiveness of, of Christian persecution throughout history. Um, and, it, and it often presents Christians as kind of like the single monolithic, undifferentiated mass that's always being kind of attacked or, or put upon or, or they're beleaguered. And, and that it's kind of this unified Christian persecuted body against an assaulting opponent. Um, and, and I wanted to kind of, in, in kind of having this sweeping overview, I wanted to kind of provide some responses to that because I, I don't see this as being a necessarily a responsible way to think about the, the nuances of history across, you know, 1500 or 1600 years. Um, so I, I guess to start, right, you, you have early Christians writing about their martyrs, you know, from more or less the first century with Christ and then, and then Stephen. And then obviously through the, the next 200 or so years, you have a number of, of martyrologies that are, that are written and circulated, you know, mostly of course, focusing on Christians who are, who are um, targeted by the Roman empire uh, for various kinds of reasons. Um, and then you have Constantine who issues the Edict of Toleration, and then this is followed by uh, a number of important ecumenical councils, starting with Nicaea in, in 325. And, and so you have this process of defining orthodox belief and practice against heterodox uh, belief. At the same time, you've got you know, theologians and and bishops and and historians like Eusebius who are reflecting upon you know the the previous three or four hundred or five hundred years, depending on when they're writing, um, and kind of what does this say about who what Christian faith is or ought to be or where it's come from and where it's going and you know all of these kinds of questions. Um, so. For someone like Eusebius to write Christian history is to write about the preservation of of Orthodox faith through this very tumultuous uh, couple of centuries, kind of culminating most tragically with you know what's called the Great Persecution in in the early fourth century. And so, for someone like Eusebius, you know, to talk about orthodoxy and to talk about martyrs, he's drawing these these lines in the sand, right? He's he's demarcating truth from falsehood, good from evil, and even as he's helping to kind of define and publicize and you know what what true Christian faith ought to be, you know, in the wake of Nicaea, um, so. 
these things are are bound together where thinking about persecution and righteousness and truth and true faith and orthodoxy right they're, they're all of of a piece with one another um which also means that right you've got people who are falling out outside the fold um you know with with each of these councils um Right, because the councils were were organized around particular conflicts around you know especially the early ones around the person of Christ and the relationship of Christ's natures and so on, and so you have this defining of who's truly Christian with who is outside of the true faith, and you know a number of these uh, sects. Right, Ten, uh, were often on the fringes of the empire geographically. You know, they were in northern Eastern Europe. Uh, they were in places, you know, like what we would refer to today as the, the Middle East, or, or in, even into Central Asia. And these are the same regions, uh, of course, that are profoundly impacted by a number of transitions politically, in terms of which empire. Uh, is controlling, you know, th- those territories, and so in with the expansion of of Islamic armies in the seventh and eighth centuries, um, you have, you know, like this this new political context, a new religious context that then starts to condition kind of what these Christian traditions can do or can't do and how they even view one another. So, um, so I guess what I wanted to, to convey in, in that part of the chapter is this range of responses that you don't sort of have Christians in Rome looking across to an expanding Islamic army, you know, who's taking over the, the so-called Christian heretics. And they're saying, Oh, our fellow Christians, they're being, they're, they're being taken over. We need to go help them. You know, actually, a, a number of them were saying, well, it serves them right because they're heretics. This is God chastising them for, you know, their heterodox beliefs and practices. Um, you had some Christians in the East, right, who came to prefer Islamic rule over Byzantine rule because to to the Byzantines, they were, they were heretics and outside of the faith, whereas they... Some of these groups were able to kind of negotiate better, better terms for themselves under under Islamic rule eventually, um, and and of course you you have a, a number of people in in cities that are destroyed, but um, in in accounts of that destruction are catastrophic, but it's also not necessarily clear that too many of those Christians at the time viewed it as terribly different than kind of what had always almost always happened in that region with you know the Persian empires coming and the Byzantine empire the Roman empires it, right it's a very contested space um and so it didn't while it was catastrophic for some it it wasn't necessarily outside the pale compared to uh some of these other um transitions of of imperial power that they had experienced themselves so i you know the the main point of of thinking about that period of of christian history in my mind is that you don't have 
an undifferentiated solidarity among Christians, right? They didn't think of all of these groups who had been previously, you know, termed heterodox or, you know, anathema and so on. Um, so you don't have like some kind of solidarity among Christians that, that these Islamic invasions produce. And you don't, nor do you have a kind of unified hatred of Muslims among these different Christians, right? So you have, you have this whole range of perspectives um, and ways of kind of n- interacting with this new reality that um, I, I think is an important piece to, to rehabilitate, in, in part because it mirrors how Christians th- in other times and places have responded to things like this that are, that are genuinely disruptive, if not catastrophic, right? You have some that see it as divine judgment, others who see it as, you know, we need to make the best of a bad situation and they find some opportunities. You know, you have others who are simply trying to survive from day to day. Right. And so there, there are also other kinds of theological resources from this time period that, that we can, we can garner other than simply some kind of simplistic um, talking point. That's somewhat common in the scholarship that I'm writing against, you know, which would simply say, Oh, look at how terrible Muslims have always been to Christians, um, which I think is not a particularly helpful summary of of, of the complexity across those hundreds of years. Now, um, as you delineate how the concept of persecution and martyrdom evolved over time, it's very interesting to see how Christians have used persecution and this category of martyr mm. to determine who counted as truly Christian or not. One of the more noticeable texts uh, that you tackle in the second chapter, which I think is worth discussing about, is the Golden Legend, which emerged during the late medieval period in Western Europe. Could you tell us more about the Golden Legend and its significance during this uh, period and what were some of theological implications? Yeah, I mean... I think the Golden Legend was not a text that I was familiar with before I started this project. Um, and in finding it was, uh, in spending a lot of time with it was, was really uh, a kind of an unexpected uh, thrill in a way. I, I mean, I think it is one of the, the most interesting texts that I've found, uh, you know, over the last several years, um, you know, like, like a, a number of, martyrologies and or hagiographies you know it's a it's a comp- compilation of of dozens and dozens of stories uh that were put together in the late 13th century and so for about you know uh, uh, you know 200 years or so this circulates in western europe right you know this is the time when uh right before the protestant reformation when you have a, a number of books being able to be produced, and, and it, this is circulating as one of the more um, widely read texts of, of the, the hundred years or so before uh, you know, Luther's famous 95 theses and so on. But I, I think what was striking to me in reading it, right, is, is that a number of these 
the the stories uh, that are included in the Golden Legend are are just they're unflinching in how visceral they are uh, in in describing the the particular tortures and sufferings of of Christ and and the saints. You know, so it's it's this deeply graphic, bloody imagery. Uh, so like flesh torn by meat hooks and people are cut and they bleed, you know, gallons upon gallons of blood in some cases, right? It's, it's very, very, everything feels like it's abundant, right? The suffering is, is kind of on the verge of credulity. Uh, the, 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 um, uh, the faith that is that is required to endure the suffering is is likewise overwhelming. The extent of the tortures is is kind of mind boggling, right? So it's this kind of deeply corporeal exploration of of suffering that you you can't look away from, right? It's 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 just um, it's it's very very gripping, deeply affecting, um, and. So it's, it makes very clear, I mean, at least in my interpretation of it, it makes very clear that, you know, the deep sense of faith that is required to endure suffering of this kind, right? Just the extraordinary levels of, of faith, as well as the, the, the presence of the miraculous in, in almost all of these martyrdoms, you know, either the miraculous nature of simply enduring for that long or the, the miracle of, the, of a resurrection or um, other kinds of miracles, uh, you know, that have to do with um, kind of just going through the process of, of suffering for one's faith. Um, so it, this this kind of connection of blood and purity and faith and suffering right is is in that sense deeply liturgical right it, it's connected very much to uh, a sense of the of the overabundance of 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 the the kind of the store of riches that the saints have have built up for believers um, and but it's also I mean, if you think about it in the 1300s, 1400s, there aren't too many people who, Christians who are being martyred, you know, from, if you're a, a Roman Catholic, right? You had heretics who had, had, were being put to death. You had, um, you know, at the end of that period, you have the start, you know, the Inquisition is is going. You have, you have these interests in repurifying the faith, but you don't necessarily have... Um, you know, it's not like people are reading this, I, I think, and thinking that they themselves could be martyred, um, you know, the next day or, or even reasonably within their lifetime. I think most people who read it probably didn't have that expectation. So it places all of these things undeniably in this kind of devotional liturgical context in which, right, there, there are spiritual truths that you can only know because of what the saints have endured uh, in suffering to the point of death for their faith. And, and I think that very much conditions, you know, the kind of the, some of the literary sensibilities of what happens in the 1500s and 1600s when you do have a number of 
Christian martyrs, both Protestant as well as Catholic and Anabaptists, right, who are then being remembered in some of that literary tradition is that's kind of most present uh, comes from a text like the Golden Legend. And so you do have some differences in how Catholics and Protestants write about their respective martyrs. Um, and, and I think those things are, are, are relevant, but it, it is um, a, a kind of fascinating text in its own right. And it's, and it's a part of, I think, a, a, a fascinating period of time where people are thinking about these things. And it's certainly you know, right, kind of sets some of the the literary spiritual foundations that would then kind of move in slightly different directions in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, thank you for sharing about the Golden Legend. And I think this was also my first time reading about it. And as you've thoroughly explained, uh, it's showing suffering at its, in a way, extreme of, of what faith requires, its conditions, as you might say. But now, kind of segueing into our third chapter, you talk about the feeling of being a free Christian and the sensibility of being persecuted, especially among American Christians as well. I know you briefly uh, touched upon uh, Eusebius, uh, the church historian in the fourth century, um, but you you bring him up again to explain how his theological vocabulary has shaped uh, the American Christian sensibility of religious freedom and Christian martyrdoms. I was wondering if you can explain, um, help us to see this connection and explain how the ancient view on martyrdom affects the way that modern American Christians feel about freedom of religion, as well as uh, global Christian suffering. Yeah, I, I'll start with you know, a few of the things that I think connect Eusebius to, to what American Christians have done. And then I'll, I'll go into a, a couple of important points of difference. Um, but to start out with kind of where Eusebius is coming from, I mean, for those who haven't perhaps read some of, of his uh, writings from the fourth century, you know, he, he's writing in a period in which Christianity is, is politically ascendant. Um, he's writing, therefore, from a position of power. Um, and, and, and when it comes to writing about martyrs i mean he, he doesn't invent this way of writing but he certainly is is among the most important chroniclers of, of christian martyrs right he's he's gathering you know what are typically pretty short stories that that tend to follow a pretty set pattern um and that is right they're, they're limited usually to individuals sometimes smaller or modestly sized groups of individuals and right. They're presented with, you know, they're brought before some sort of authority. They're presented with a chance to recant. Usually um, they typically don't uh, otherwise they wouldn't be a martyr. And, um, and then they're, they're sometimes given multiple chances to renounce their faith or to have some sort of compromise. They refuse even as the the threats uh, against them perhaps escalate from something like imprisonment or or torture to death and and they ultimately face death you know with their faith fully intact you, you know often 
you know, confessing uh, Christ uh, at the at the end, right? And so, for Eusebius, when he's writing about martyrs from the vantage point that he had, right? This is the forces of good overcoming the forces of evil, right? These are, these are kind of in in a sense, many apocalypses, right? They show that good triumphs over evil. And Mm. they also show that true Christianity has martyrs. They, true Christianity has people who are willing to die for it in the same way that Christ was willing to sacrifice himself. Um, And so, he uses that then to critique some heretical, uh, you know, or heterodox groups who supposedly didn't have martyrs. And so martyrs demonstrate theological truth. Uh, mm-hmm. So, th- so there are some points that I think connect here to th- the modern American context. Uh, one is that, you know, a lot of martyrologies, even even more or less contemporary accounts today they usually omit a lot, right? These are often still pretty terse stories uh, that in many cases follow the same kind of literary genre that Eusebius lays out, right? You have someone who's, uh, is a Christian. They come into conflict with an authority that authority, you know, brings them to trial. They don't recant. They're thrown into prison or, you know, or they're, they're killed or, or, you know, they're targeted by another group or, or so on, right? But they, they, it's usually pretty minimalistic, and it centers upon the person not renouncing their faith and willing to go uh, e- even up to the point of death um, mm. to stand up for their faith. So you're not going to find geopolitical nuance <laughs> in a martyrology, right? They, they, they're focusing upon the indiv- usually the individual and, and that person's faith and the fact that they refuse to concede to these evil forces. Mm-hmm. Um, so even still today when, when American Christians like write about this, say in, in a group like the Voice of the Martyrs in, in one of their updates, right? They're, they're almost explicitly following this kind of formula that that um, the, that early Christian historians uh, and theologians like Eusebius uh, developed and that it's showing the sort of it's prioritizing Christian identity Christian belief Christian practice over other forms of identity and it's showing mm-hmm. evil against good or or the evil against the righteous and with the idea that the righteous can prevail um, so it in that sense, it, it's it's based on identity. It tends to be fairly apocalyptic, um, mm. and and it also has come to serve right this this dynamic of you tell these stories in order to leverage power, uh, and in some cases like the power of the American government or the State Department or so on to to come to. To, to rectify this injustice. Right? So it has this effect of perhaps bolstering or furthering American power. Mm. Um, but I think also something that's relevant is, is what I, I kind of referenced before is like this, the way that these stories in some sense decontextualize these encounters by mm. making them about sort of Christian faith and really not talking often about much else outside of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in, in almost any, in almost all cases, 
the context makes the story more complex, right? And, and I'll just share a, a quick anecdote that, that a friend of mine uh, told me after he read the book uh, a couple months back. He uh, he was in seminary and, and he remembered, oh yeah, I had this missions professor who went to Southeast Asia uh, before he became a professor and he was called to Southeast Asia uh, to, to Laos. Um, sort of through a mission, uh, an evangelical missions agency, um, but kind of at the behest or kind of in partnership with the, the government because there were Christians in a, in a rural part who were being targeted and, and persecuted. And so it was presented to, to the American mission board as, um, as, you know, this is religious persecution. And so he's sent over there to, to address religious persecution and he gets there and he starts talking with these pastors and they're telling him kind of what's going on. And, and they tell him a story of, well, you know, these, this, these other group of vill- villagers who aren't Christians are coming in and they're, you know, they're attacking our churches. I think some had been, you know, burned down or destroyed in some way. You know, in some cases, their their farms and gardens had been, uh, you know, uprooted or or destroyed as well. And so, and and he said, well, why why do you think they're doing that to you? And they said, well, we've we won't work with them. And apparently in this, in this region, it, it had been common for villages to, at certain times of the year, to, to work together to go out and, and I, I believe, you know, work in the rice fields together so that it wasn't simply about an individual's plot, but they would, you know, the whole village would, would mobilize to around these certain work cycles. And they refused to participate in this because... Uh, they were told by an American missionary back in the 50s and 60s when they first converted that these things were uh, demonic, you know, that this was a part of something, this was a part of the world that they needed to separate themselves from, and they should be outside of the world, and these these kind of commitments detracted from their faith. And so what this American missionary who had been called to, to kind of help resolve this issue sort of started thinking about with these pastors uh, was, well, what if we developed a different kind of theology that allowed you to find some forms of work that you could engage in? And so once they kind of developed a slightly different theology, then they were able to find other forms of communal work that sort of allowed them to participate in the life of the village without feeling like they were compromising their faith in some way. And so this missions professor was then sort of raising the question to his class, was this an issue of religious persecution or wasn't it? And right, and that question becomes a lot more complicated with that kind of long-term context as compared to there's a church that's been burned down in rural Laos. You, you're, your, your brothers and sisters uh, in Christ are suffering and you need to come to their aid, right? It, it places that question in those dynamics in a, in a, in a significantly different context. So I, I think when American Christians start to borrow from Eusebius's stylings, those kinds of gaps uh, mm. also emerge. I, I think... 
and just to just to conclude here with a couple of important differences from from Eusebius, um, I think it's become pretty common across you know major organizations like Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors or Aid to the Church in Need. These are these are pretty massive international groups. You know, they when they're talking about Christian persecution, they're they're talking about Christians in a very, very broad sense, right? From Pentecostals to Orthodox to, in many cases, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on. So um, they're kind of contravening Eusebius, who very much saw persecution as, as a as a place in, in history in which you could see theological truth emerging. Whereas now persecution serves as like this kind of opening ecumenical opening up of, of Christians imagining themselves as participating in the same faith across these, you know, significant denominational boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, another, I think issue is that, Christians have come to include a whole wide range of forms of suffering as martyrdoms that really don't fit at all with Eusebius's model of having sort of an individual brought before somebody who had the authority to put them to death and refusing to recant their faith. Um, the, The category of martyr then has been massively expanded on a practical level over the last, especially 30 years. Um, and so this is kind of like a, a shifting of the goalposts, you know, to use a, a sports reference, even though they're using the same kind of literary genre and terminology like martyrs, they're actually using quite different definitions in, in some cases. Um, and and I'm referring really, kind of most specifically to the to the figures uh, put out by the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, um, and I think we can talk about those in uh, in, a, in a little bit. But um, in that sense, right, they're they're sort of borrowing from Eusebius in the rich kind of spiritual theological tradition that he represents, even as they make pretty substantial changes to uh, that tradition. That is a fascinating analysis. Um, yeah, you talk about the challenges of drawing empirical and statistical data in measuring the global Christian persecution. You mentioned a few databases, the Commission on International Religious Freedom, the Pew Forum, and as you mentioned, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. Now, can we talk more about these databases? What kind of roles do these statistics play in shaping the conviction that Christianity is the most persecuted religion? Yeah, I mean, I think with numbers and statistics, right? These these things can have a, a profound impact on how we've we we come to view the world, you know, as as modern people. Um, we live in a world of quantification um, in which, you know, different forms of metrics determine all kinds of priorities from healthcare to technology to, you know, political movements and so on. Um, And that quantification, I think, can lead in this case to politis, 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 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I'm tripping over the word politicization, politicization um, of, of Christian persecution. And so in, in this case, suffering is quantified in a few different ways by the groups that, that you mentioned. Um, the Pew Forum, which is a part of the Pew Charitable Trust, which you know is an, is an organization going back to the mid, mid-20th century, you know, they've long been interested in issues of democracy and public life and public opinion and you know, demographics, especially of, of the United States. And uh, often with a with a, a kind of valence towards towards religion and issues of faith. So the Pew Forum is is kind of the research arm of that. That's that's a couple decades old, more or less. And and they've been tracking all kinds of you know relevant public opinion public demographic uh, kinds of questions, both in the United States as well as internationally. So one metric they use is a, is a somewhat simplistic one, and it has to do with simply kind of listing how many countries have restrictive um, policies or laws um, against religion. And so it doesn't necessarily quantify how severe those laws are or who they affect or, you know, how extensive, you know, are they actually acted upon or are they simply on the books, right? There are all kinds of other questions, uh, but they, they do, they have tracked this kind of global regulations on religion or global restrictions on religion. And, and in some cases, you know, they've, they've shown an uptick in recent years and, so that's that's kind of one that's maybe like the 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 most um, the most ambiguous way of of thinking about tracking these kinds of things. Um, the Commission on International Religious Freedom comes out of the International Religious Freedom Act that was passed in in the late '90s by by the U.S. Uh, Congress, and 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 signed by by then President uh, Clinton. And, and that created this commission, which then has served to track issues around religious persecution, religious freedom restrictions worldwide. And so this falls, you know, uh, I think mostly within the purview of the State Department. And and so every year they they publish a major report, depending, uh, sometimes they'll publish intermediate reports if there's a, a particular event or emergency or, or change of circumstances that affects religious freedom in a particular country or region. But, but it's really their annual reports are kind of like these encyclopedic compendia of, of issues around, you know, who's imprisoned have, you know, was a synagogue bombed, were temples bombed, was a church bombed, you know, are there prisoners of conscience um, that are perhaps pastors or priests or followers of a particular sect, right? They, they track all of that and it's, it's, it's cataloged in, in, you know, reasonable detail. Um, And these are then presented ultimately to the president to act upon in terms of, of uh, different kinds of, sanctions that might be leveraged against uh, countries that don't guarantee religious freedom or, or that have issues. Um, 
you know, I, I think that's, that's been a little bit mixed in uh, my view, at least, you know, I mean, there's, in terms of its actual effect, right? Saudi Arabia has been exempted from these restrictions. I think from the very beginning, uh, there there are other powerful countries in which, you know, fairly egregious um, uh, in, infractions against religious freedom have taken place, and and if they're they're strategically advantageous to the United States, they they often find themselves without too many uh, slaps on the wrist. Um, and and I think there is a sense that while the commission does track religious freedom across the board, it it uh, you know it it's had a, a certain kind of Christian valence to often what gets publicized, um, which uh, is I, I think an issue. Uh, it's a, it's a problem. Um, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity comes out of a slightly different legacy. It, it it emerges, you know, out of the work of of a pioneering sociologist, David Barrett, who did some some very important work in the mid twentieth century um, on Christianity in Africa is is what I know best. But um, he he kind of puts numbers to to Christianity outside of Europe and North America in a way that. Uh, other scholars just simply hadn't. Um, and so he was interested in developing uh, a, a center and a, and, a, and a method for thinking sort of theologically about Christian demographics and what could be known through quantification, uh, sociological quantification. Um, so that center starting in the in the 90s um, started publishing uh, estimates of globe annual estimates of global Christian martyrs and um, these were astoundingly high um, in the range of a hundred thousand or more by the end of the 1990s they were estimating you know 164 165 thousand Christian martyrs per year right these are these are astronomical numbers um, and I spend a, a I think a fair bit of time in the book working through how they come to those numbers and what the problems with them are because these numbers circulate like they circulate in Christian devotional material. They circulate in op-eds. They circulate in, um, in the halls of Congress. I mean, some of these figures have been cited by members of Congress in, in forming panels about Christian persecution. Some of these numbers seem to have informed the UK's high commission on global Christian persecution, uh, which, um, uh, started a few years ago, and I think just issued its report um, uh, in the somewhat recent past. Um, so, so it's not like they're just kind of theoretical numbers, right? They really are a part of the world, you know. Like they they circulate um, it, it not just among scholars, but among you know Christians and politicians and and others. And um, in terms of I mean, I'll, I'll try to be brief with what my critique of, of, of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity's numbers are, but it, in part of this critique, others have raised too, and that is that the overwhelming majority of these 
uh, of the martyrs over the past 25 years or so come from conflicts in Rwanda and Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And, um, you know, a, a number of other people have, have cited that. Um, the, the CSGC states that they believe that since the populations of those countries is statistically overwhelmingly Christian and that there's mass violence uh, occurring in those societies that um, it's reasonable to expect that a number of those Christians have given their lives in some way because of their faith, that they've put themselves in some kind of danger or have made themselves vulnerable to the point of being killed, um, that they should count as martyrs. And so they take a, a, the statistic, the, the, the figures that were generated uh, out of the Rwandan genocide uh, by the Rwandan government, which puts the, the number right over 1 million uh, Tutsis killed. And uh, then they take uh, a number generated by the, the International Rescue Committee uh, on the death toll of the conflict of the wars in Congo. Um, and then they average those out across those decades. Um, I'll, I'll skip the, the problems with Rwanda because that just to, to kind of focus on the Congo to be, to be more concise, you know, the issue with using the, the figures from the Congo is that um, the CSGC says that to be a martyr, you have to have been killed directly and violently as a direct cause of your faith in Christ. And they say that they explicitly exclude uh, deaths related to illness, injury, natural disasters, other kind of tangential, unfortunate catastrophes, uh, and so on. The IRC admits that the vast majority of deaths in the Congo are indirect deaths due to illnesses like malaria, uh, diarrhea, malnutrition. Um, and to the, to the extent that, um, you know, they and, and some others would only estimate that in terms of direct violent deaths in the, in the wars in the Congo, there's only maybe 20 to 45,000 direct deaths out of the 6.9 million deaths that they cite as the ultimate toll of these wars. So that's a vast discrepancy. Um, nevertheless, you know, the CSGC takes the higher number of 6.9 million and, and then they take 20% of that number, even though it's almost entirely comprised of people who died of preventable diseases, malnutrition, and, and preventable injury, um, and counts them as martyrs. And um, as, as if this is kind of the same, somehow uh, at all a part of the same tradition that, you know, Eusebius is writing out of. Um, so this is what I meant earlier when I said that the goalposts very much shift when you move to that kind of form of description. Um, and, and in my view, at least the argument that I present in the book is that that's a, a profoundly disingenuous <laughs> argument. Um, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not against, um, attempting to denigrate the suffering of people in Rwanda or, or the Congo by any means, but, um, it, it gets to it gets to the point where the CSGC is 
is sort of having their cake and eating it too by by claiming that they're not doing something that they're in fact doing in counting uh, these millions of people who have died for causes that they that their own definition excludes. Um, and I, I guess a, a final point on this is it has to do with you know what's the effect of these numbers, and that that gets that gets really tricky. I don't have a, a, a particularly great answer, uh, you know, because in part. I, I started to get the feeling that it, it, people who might feel as though Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the planet don't necessarily care about parsing the numbers, right? The numbers simply kind of reinforce a, a, a more fundamental feeling. Uh, and so to um, so the same feeling might be generated with numbers that are 3,000 martyrs per year as compared to 150,000 martyrs per year. So in that sense, uh, I, I sometimes got the feeling that wondering if, you know, how, do these numbers, are these numbers generating this, this sentiment or are they kind of almost a reflection of it? Um, and, and I, I, that's, that's a kind of chicken and egg question that at least for me is, is somewhat unresolved. Wow, thank you for that answer. And um, in a way, thank you for providing us uh, with that critical insight into um, these databases. Um, I was wondering if you could also say more about the term, uh, the modern theological vocabulary of persecution um, that is attached to the First Amendment um, and a certain interpretation of the Civil War as well. Because you mentioned that the anti-Christian persecution literature from the mid-1990s onward tends to draw heavily uh, from these ancient uh, martyrological genres and Christian theological vocabulary. So, and could you explain why this is the case as well? Yeah, so I, I think when Christians talk about martyrs, this is a Right there's something that transcends history about this category. Right, it ultimately goes back to Christ, um, where martyrs are, in some sense, recapitulating Christ's death, and um, or at least following in his in his model. And I and so to call someone a martyr is then to, in some sense, identify their death with Christ's own death, um, and so. Thinking about the term martyr, it draws very much on that legacy, that that deep tradition, and it invites this kind of historical continuity. Um, I think, in addition to that, in pulling it into the American context, you know, I needed to account for a few things in the book overall, in terms of like the the big questions. And one was sort of how did American Christians come to understand in the late 20th, early 21st century, that their faith was supposedly under global attack. Um, you know, in that sense, like, what were the processes by which, like, an American evangelical looked upon Nigerian Catholics being attacked by Boko Haram and said, you know, we're a part of the same faith, you know? Um, but another kind of fundamental question that that I think your questions get at is, you know, how did many American Christians come to view themselves as being persecuted within the United States and then kind of use that as a way to connect uh, 
with persecuted Christians outside of the United States. And, you know, so I had to think about, you know, where did that piece come from? What, what are, what are, you know, what's, what's the origins of this sentiment that like, even though you're supposedly in this city on a hill that was, you know, allegedly founded to escape religious persecution, do you find yourself being persecuted by, you know, the federal government or American society at kind of in general? And, you know, the earliest place that I could find that, or, or at least a lot of theological reflection around that idea, kind of the, at least the, the seeds of it, was in how Southern pastors and theologians, you know, sometimes called Southern divines, responded to the Confederacy's defeat in the Civil War. And, you know, obviously there were a, a whole range of responses to how Southerners you know, dealt with, rationalized, reflected upon, you know, what happened in the Civil War and in Reconstruction. But, you know, you know, somewhat common, I mean, I I can't quantify it, but, you know, somewhat pretty pervasive throughout a lot of those responses was, you know, this kind of core idea that the South was a righteous society that was designed on biblical principles and it had been unjustly persecuted by the Union. Um, so its defeat wasn't so much like a chastisement for its sin of slavery, though some people kind of took it in that direction, of course. But it was rather like its defeat was the death of a righteous martyr, right? That the, that the godly society uh, was allowed to, to be killed, um, and this kind of mentality obviously plays really well into, you know, what's sometimes called the lost cause or, you know, there, there's a book, you know, the religion of the lost cause uh, that has a kind of theological valence to this. But, but it, it, it feeds into that notion of the, the, the righteous person being killed and, and the, the implicit promise of resurrection that's a part of that. And, and this is an idea that kind of then comes back in a, in a noticeable way, you know, in other relevant periods, right? It it comes back in the, in the fifties and sixties when the civil rights movement is, is, um, you know, making profound changes. Um, and, and so you have some, again, not exclusively, but uh, many notable Southern Christians who kind of bring back a number of familiar talking points that the Southern divines, you know, 50, 60, 100 years before had been making about a righteous society then being persecuted by an overreaching federal government. Um, Some of these same kinds of uh, ideas then come back again around in some cases like title nine in the eighties. And then in the wake of the uh, Supreme court's ruling uh, some years ago on same sex marriage um, that you have very, very similar kind of ideas that are in, in a sentiment that's being generated by those ideas of what's left of the godly society as being, pushed upon, eroded, attacked by a federal, by the U.S. federal government. And this idea, I think, also kind of meshes really well with 
the the American Jeremiah, right? This this feeling of we were great, um, we were better than we've fallen away from that. We can revive ourselves, um, or God will revive us, right? This 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 is a, a you know a kind of a, it becomes a literary genre in in, in American writing, um, and it it very much infuses like this kind of recurring dimension in, in American public life. I think so. This sense of the loss of something great, the promise of something better, or the promise of some kind of resurrection, right? This is a it's a powerful idea, um, but it, it in this case I think it it for me it informs some of the the foundational reasons as to why it's more mostly american christians who are then generating this idea that there's a global war on christians and that america is itself a part of this global war it's a it's a battlefield for this and and for me that was kind of a way to account for why is it in in the united states that this is emerging when it does uh, and um, and but it, it, it clearly is 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 a powerful idea that resonates for you know a whole host of reasons you know one is changing demographics you know but another is like the way that it it weaves so powerfully into deep deep Christian spiritual imaginings of around things like persecution, righteousness, martyrdom, the promise of resurrection, right? It bundles these things together in, in, in a way that I think a lot of people rightfully so, I mean, find very compelling. Now in your final chapter, you talk about how the metaphysical body of Christ can be understood differently and more critically so what is the message that you would like to invite the readers to think about, particularly for Christian readers, both for American and global Christian readers? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the language of, of the body of Christ is, you know, it comes from the New Testament. It comes from Paul, you know, that when one part of, you know, he's talking to a, a church and, and he's trying to say you're connected to one another, you're connected to believers, you know, that you can't necessarily see or be in their same physical presence, and you're part of this body of Christ. And so if one part suffers, the rest might suffer with it. And um, this language, right, it's a, the, this kind of bodily metaphor has, has been really prominent in from groups like Voice of the Martyrs and, and Open Doors and, and you know, other, other people as well. Right, it's a language of affiliation. It's a language of belonging. It's a language of connection. It's not a language of doctrine, really. Um, you know, it's not a language of orthodoxy. Right, you're not you're not asked to account for well, is there a human and divine nature in Christ? If so, you know, how are they related? Is there a divine mind in Christ? You know, or is there a human mind also? Right. You're not asked to kind of explain those kind of ancient theological points of debate, right? It's, it's this language of, of affiliation and belonging and family that it primes. And the occasion of for, for my reflections on that come from a, a a day-long conference that I attended in the U.S. Senate building about three years ago, and and al- almost everybody at that conference used that kind of language, 
the body of Christ, um, as opposed to, you know, something that was more doctrinally specific or, or denominationally specific, right? It was about the suffering body of Christ. And they were referring really to a particular kind of suffering, right? Religious persecution was the suffering body of Christ. And um, what I started to question in the wake of that conference, which was really kind of around this idea that American Christians don't care that there are their, their brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering and being persecuted worldwide, that Christ essentially is, is suffering in our midst and we are not responding to it. We're allowing Christ to suffer unnecessarily. That was kind of the the political impetus of the of the meeting. And what I started to reflect on that, that day and in the wake of, of that conference was was thinking about, well, is Christ's suffering limited to religious persecution? You know, why? You know, there's nothing, you know, that would suggest in the New Testament that like that 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 Christ only suffers when there's th- some particular form of religious persecution. And, but it's that form of suffering, religious persecution, that's most politicized, uh, at, at least, you know, in the last 25 years or 30 years. And it was also, you know, during this time, right, it's the spring to early summer of, of 2018, when, you know, we're, we're learning that, the border policies that the Trump administration had enacted uh, around family separation, you know, were being enforced, and and the effects of this seem to be, you know, catastrophic, you know, to to the people seeking asylum or or attempting to in, enter the United States, um, and but yet this this was not at all a part of the the imagination of, of the conference and Christian suffering. And, and so I started to wonder why that was, why, why would we, you know, the, there, uh, you know, almost all of these immigrants are coming from Central America, which is demographically speaking, overwhelmingly Christian, you know, 90% plus for, for a lot of areas. Um, right. These are Christians, um, who are suffering, and they're suffering because of decisions that, broadly speaking, American Christians are making. And it's certainly not the only instance of this. I mean, but but it's it's the one that was kind of most most present in my mind um, at the time. You know, so so is is I wanted to ask Christians, right? Is Christ not suffering here? You know, is this or, and you know. One step further, are we not causing Christ to suffer here? As American Christians, are we not doing this? Um, because I, I think the danger of some of this idea about righteousness and being persecuted is that it then sort of eliminates context, it, it eliminates ambiguity, it eliminates all of these other points of identity that are relevant for addressing these actual circumstances and issues, right? It, it mattered that these were people who were speaking in one of the most, one of the greatest halls of power, you know, that exists on, on the, on the planet today. You know, the U S Congress has, has immense power 
um, and it's connected to a government that has immense power. Um, and, and that difference matters, right? It, it matters that they're using these texts that were written from perspectives of, of massive marginalization from the peripheries of the Roman Empire. And now they're sort of using this in a place of immense power to try and leverage power with this, with this idea that, you know, we're righteous, we're, and therefore are kind of above reproach. And, and my caution, I guess, is that if we want to think about, if, if as American Christians, the movement is to think about the suffering body of Christ, then we need to do some hard reflecting on, for those of us who are, who are uh, American, especially uh, from the United States, you know, are we not contributing to the suffering? What does this look like? Um, so I would hope that the effect of, of that is that, you know, that there's some more humility, there's some more generosity um, that we ought not to, you know, assume our inherent righteousness or goodness when it comes to acting politically in the world. Um, and, and that we need to think, I think, in, in some hard ways about the ways in which we've become blind to how we contribute to suffering in the world even among fellow Christians, but there's no reason that it needs to, to stop there. I mean, in, in the book, I'm, I'm a little bit hard on a few Southern Baptists, so I'll, I'll, I'll end here by, by kind of giving them a, a, a pat on the back because, you know, recently the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution, you know, condemning uh, the Chinese government for their treatment of, of Uyghurs and, who are predominantly Muslim, and right, and they're but in that resolution, uh, right, they use the language of Hebrews, and in that language of Hebrews, would you know to remember those who are imprisoned as though you were imprisoned with them, and they're saying, you know, in passing that resolution, we recognize the suffering uh, in this case of, of Uyghurs and Uyghur Muslims as our own suffering. And we condemn the injustice, right? This is this is, I think, a a, a beautiful, a beautiful moment, and it, and it shows the power of thinking beyond kind of crass religious identitarian terms, um, and it shows how these same kinds of ideas can can then inform a, a I think, a broader, more holistic, more just politics, um, and and that would be my hope. Wow, thank you for for those words and for inviting our readers uh, for a deeper reflection and a deeper engagement in this in this topic. And also we are very grateful for today's uh, thorough discussion on your book as well. In a way to wrap things up for uh, today's interview, um, there is a final question that I would like to ask my guests, and that is, do you mind sharing with us uh, what are you currently working on? Uh, maybe a little about your uh, future projects as well, or um, what you hope to work on in the future. Yeah, thank you. Um, the the next the sort of the next thing in the in the publishing pipeline, so to speak, is is a. Uh, is an edited volume that I, I co-edited with my good friend David Kirkpatrick, 
Um, and and we're uh, really excited about how that's come together. We've we've got uh, a whole range of of scholars coming from different disciplines: ethicists, theologians, historians, uh, ethnographers, who are you know kind of collectively giving some really um, insightful, valuable, important um, kind of. Uh, scholarly directions around these questions, and and uh, and since both David and I come out of of a world Christianity, you know, graduate program, um, you know, it, it's in, it's putting some some lines of scholarship just in conversation with others, you know. So it's it's thinking about, you know, what if what if we took violence and it's it's kind of prevalence in the world uh, seriously when we're thinking about what shapes Christian faith globally and how Christians have responded to it. Um, and so uh, it's it's a really insightful um, collection of essays that should be out next year. Um, I've got a, a couple of other, you know, shorter articles that I'm, I'm co-authoring, one with David and another with uh, uh, a really wonderful uh, emerging scholar, Candice uh, Lukasik at uh, who's at Washington University in St. Louis around similar kinds of ideas about violence and and power in world Christianity, um, and then I'm, I guess the final thing is that I'm, I'm I'm I've just started work on a on a short textbook on uh, that I, I've at least provisionally titled How to Study Global Christianity, which um, I'm hoping will will be a you know, a, a kind of introductory resource to some of the formative debates and concepts in, in our, in our discipline so that, you know, uh, another generation of, of scholars and, and uh, Christians can think about these things and, and push, you know, push the ideas forward and, and see what else develops. Wow. Thank you so much, Jason, for the sharing about your uh, projects, your current working, what you're currently working on and your future projects as well. I think Sharon and I both look forward to reading more of your works. Um, and once again, thank you so much for being on uh, the podcast today. A real uh, privilege and a, and a pleasure. So thank you both. And thank you everyone so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored Jason Bruner's Imagining Persecution, Why American Christians Believe There is a Global War Against Their Faith, published by Rutgers University Press in 2021. This is your host, Byung-ho Choi. And Shalon Park. And stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.